This morning, I want to begin with a this event. It really happened. Pastor friend or a pastor acquaintance told me about this. It happened in his church back about 43 years ago in South Texas. And I want you to try to imagine trying to go ahead and have church after this happened, okay? Because this is what happened. It was Easter Sunday morning in this South Central Texas church. And uh, places packed. You know, you can imagine it's got all these little girls in their dresses, got all the young men and some of the older men in their nice suits. Beautiful Sunday morning, but it's hot. It's South Texas. Well, anyway... <clears throat> They're getting finished with the music service and the big choir up here behind the, the, the pulpit and they're doing their special music and just about as they're getting done with their special music, a big drop of water comes down from the ceiling and hits one of the choir members right in the head. Well, you know what happens when something hits you in the head. You look up and then another big drop of water hits him right smack in the forehead. There's a little, little dark spot up there where the water's coming through. And so what the, what the guy in the choir robe decides he's going to do is he needs to go out and investigate because he was on the building committee. He wanted to know what was going on. So at the end of the, the song, the preacher gets up and begins to pray. He's about to launch into his sermon, and this guy kind of scooches out of the, the choir. It's one of those churches where the choir stayed up. But he scooches out of the choir, and he goes and gets two more. Mike, he goes and gets you. He goes and gets two more members of the building committee out of the, out of the congregation right quick. They go up two levels of stairs. They open up the attic. They go up in the attic, all three of them, even the guy in the choir robe. And they're up there in the attic now looking because what they figure is one of those drip pans is full of water. You know, under an air conditioner, because it was hot, it's Texas. Underneath there's water in this drip pan. And they figure it's going to flow over and it's going to ruin something. They don't want any more damage to be done to the church. So here they are. The pastor has just said his amen as they're going up in the attic. Now you probably know what's about to come out of this. He's up there and he's welcoming people and he's talking about how all the girls look so pretty and all the beautiful little people. And, and he hears this noise up above his head. Now if you're an experienced preacher, you don't let noise above your head bother you. You just keep on going. If something's buzzing, you just keep on going. It's, you know, you try not to let anything bother you. Well, they're hearing this noise up above them now and the people in the choir are looking up. Wondering, what's that noise up there? Because they're coming up the beams, headed for that drip pan. Well, the preacher just gets about into his third line of the text. And you can hear some creaking right up above his head. And all of a sudden, boom, you know what happened. A big old ugly foot comes hanging down out of the ceiling. On Easter Sunday morning, right there above the choir. And there's a collective gasp. And then there's a collective moment of silence. And you hear this Texas accent say, get your foot out of there. He pulls his foot. Can you see anything? Well, I can see the choir. <laughs> now try to imagine preaching after that. <laughs> to this day, the people in that church still talk about that Easter Sunday morning. That's a true story. Dennis Swanberg was pastoring. Maybe that's why he quit pastoring. I don't know. But that was, this happened to him. And in that day, it was a memorable day. It's something they still talk about. Well, in the life of Jesus, there were many, many, many memorable days. But there was a day in the life of Jesus that was every bit as memorable as this one that Dennis Swanberg and his church experienced. 
But it, it's so memorable partly because it's in the Bible, but also because it's very similar to what happened that day there at that South Texas church. So I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles with me to Mark chapter number 2. As we continue in our study through this wonderful book of Mark, I want you to open to Mark chapter 2. We're going to be reading verses 3 through 12. Mark chapter 2, verses 3 through 12. And as you're finding that, let me just kind of give you a, the background, kind of set the stage a little bit. Um, last week we looked at the first two verses where Jesus has just come back from his Galilean ministry. He's been on the circuit riding, kind of going from village to village, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel. He's come all the way around now back to Capernaum, and the Bible says there in verse 2, or in verse 1, he was at home. He was back at the house where everybody knew where he would be, back there in, in, uh, in Capernaum. And in verse 3, Jesus is in the house, He's preaching, he's teaching, and something's about to happen because now a huge crowd has showed up. That's what verse 2 tells us. Many were gathered around so there's not even room even close to the door to even have anybody else come in. And in verse 3 it begins like this. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And being unable to get to him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had dug an opening... They let down the pallet on which the paralytic was lying. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, My son, your sins are forgiven. But there were some of the scribes sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, Why does this man speak that way? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus was aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves and said to them, Jesus speaking to them, Why are you reasoning about these things in your heart? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Arise and take up your pallet and walk? But in order that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, He says to the paralytic, I say to you, Rise, take up your pallet and go home. And He rose and immediately took up the pallet and went out inside of all, so that they were all amazed and were glorifying God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. And I pray this morning, Father, as we examine this event in the life of Jesus, that you would speak to every heart that's here. Lord, thank you that you love us just like you loved these people then. You love us today. Minister to our needs as you minister to the needs of this man. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Now, as you can probably tell, this is one of those events in the life of Christ, one of the, the stories that are here that... <laughs> Every Sunday school teacher has taught this, this lesson. Every children's church teacher worth their salt has gone through this because it's such a visually satisfying kind of a, of a lesson. Backyard Bible Club, puppet shows, whatever. It's a famous event. It, it, it ends with a major miracle. And it's, again, back at Simon Peter's house. We saw this in the, in the first chapter that Jesus had kind of made his headquarters there at Simon Peter's house. That's where all the people had come. He's back at that same place. So as we read this today, I want to show you, I think we can easily find three different kinds of people that are in this, these 12 verses here. Now there's really a fourth, but we'll get to that later on. First of all, I want us to find these three people because I can tell you that all three of the people that we're going to find here, the three categories at least, are also represented here in the room with us today. Because there's three kinds of categories, really three categories of people pretty much everywhere we go. The first ones I want us to notice, the first group of people, the first category, if you will, I want to call the suffering seekers, or you could turn it around, the seeking sufferers. That would be, in verse 3, it says, they came. Now, it doesn't say it in this particular version, but other translations say, some men. 
It says, we don't know if there's only four, but it took four guys to carry the man on the mat, the man on the, the, the pallet. So we know that some men were there, a band of brothers who had come together to bring this paralytic man to Jesus. So we have the men, that is the carriers of the mat, the ones that, are, that have the pallet, and then we have the paralytic, the man on the mat, the man on, in the pallet. Both and all of them were seeking. They all came seeking. Both and all of them were suffering. You say, well, I can see the suffering of the man on the mat. I mean, he's a paralytic, but what about, what, how are these other men suffering? They were suffering for their friend. They knew in, in, in concern for, in their hearts, they were all seeking Jesus. The man in the mat was seeking Jesus' ministering touch. The four men that carried the mat wanted a ministering touch for him, so they are, they're carrying the burden in their heart as well as on their shoulders. So for, wherever you find Jesus, let this be the first group we see. Wherever you find Jesus, look around, and you'll see a group of seeking sufferers, whether they're suffering for themselves or somebody else. Uh, first-hand suffering, man in the mat. Second-hand suffering, bearing the suffering of another. So that's the first group. The second group, we want to see the listening learners. Anywhere you're going to find Jesus, there are listening learners. Remember verses 1 and 2 where it says that a whole crowd had come together. It was noised out. Jesus is back in the house. This whole crowd comes together. This is what we would have said today we think of as the audience. Now, I don't think of a church group as an audience. This is a congregation. But in those days, there would have been a lot of people, the mixed multitude maybe. But they had come together. It was not unusual at all. In early days, in the days of the, the early church or in the life and ministry of Jesus, if a rabbi was somewhere teaching, he would have a group of disciples because he's got to have somebody to teach. There are listening learners. There are rabbis there. Okay, well, you could tell how successful and how, uh, well, I hate to say successful, but you could tell how well-liked a rabbi was by the size of his Disciple group, you know, the listening learners that are there. Well, these, these men, that is the, the four men carrying the man on the mat, all five of them knew there's going to be some people with Jesus. So when we get there, we may have to go around some folks. So they, they knew that there was going to be a group there with Jesus, but the, the size that had come together here at Peter's house, the listening learners that were there, it was an unprecedented number of people. It was unexpected, both by Peter and his family and by these men, and it was unaccounted for, or unaccounted, well, how can you say it? These guys who were bringing the mat, they did not expect to find a wall of people. And that's what they got to. They got to Peter's house. There was this, here they were, the suffering seekers coming to, and there's this entirely stuck, jam-packed wall of people. So here these, these seeking sufferers come and they find out that wherever Jesus is, not only will there be suffering seekers, but there will be listening learners. Listening learners who are there for the lesson. Now, before I introduce the third group, I must walk us through as much as possible. I want you to kind of put yourself in this situation that's going on. Because when I introduce this third group of people, they're going to stand out like in a different way if I, if I, if I can build it the way I need to here. Because these men, these four friends at least, may have been more, these four friends had heard that Jesus was back. And they knew, hey, we have a friend. 
And he is paralyzed. When Jesus was here before, he couldn't come to Peter's house to be healed. He was paralyzed. Nobody thought to go get him. But Jesus is back now. Why don't we get together? We've got a plan. Why don't we get together and carry our friend to Jesus? Wouldn't that be a neat thing to do? Wouldn't that be a good thing to do? I mean, friends, that's something you think about when you've got a friend who's in pain. You want to help them. So they got it together and got a plan. They got a, a pallet or a mat. Now, I don't know how many of you have ever slept on the floor in a pallet. You know, they put three or four blankets together, or they put maybe a little uh, air mattress down. These days, it's more like we've got to have an air mattress. I'm not sleeping on the floor. This guy slept on the floor most of his life, I would imagine. But they have this little pallet thing, kind of a mat that you can imagine, and they had the four corners of it, and, 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 and evidently, they were able to tie ropes to the four corners because they're going to, well, we'll see in a minute, they're going to drop him down a hole, which had to be exciting. But here they've said, we've, we've, got, we've got love and concern and mercy for our friend. So they put him on a pallet, they get the four corners, and they take off down the street with him. They're headed down this street, and they, they, they know they're going to Jesus. We're going to take our friend to Jesus. We're about to get to see Jesus. And they turn the corner that goes to Peter's house, and there's this wall of people I talked about before. It's jam-packed. Now listen, it's tricky enough carrying a pallet with somebody in it through the streets of any city. I can imagine it's tricky. I've never really tried it. But now they come to this wall of people, and now it's going to be, um, wow, how are we going to get through this? They go and knock, they, they tap on the first, hey, can you let us by? No. Oh, um, well, can, can we slip through over here? No. I'm trying to listen. You be quiet. I'm trying to listen. I need to hear what Jesus said. And, and they got to this place, and it seemed as though that crowd was more, well, they were less concerned for the friend than the four men were, obviously. And so they can't get through. They can't, because of the press, they can't get through to Jesus. And rather than be stymied, rather than be stopped, now I have to wonder which one of these guys it was that thought outside the box. You know, because who thinks of, let's go up on the roof and chop a hole. I mean, come on. You just don't do that sort of thing at somebody else's house. If I do that at my house, I'm in trouble. Well, imagine what it's like doing it at somebody else's house. But somebody, one of these guys thinks of, hey, let's go up on the roof and we'll find where Jesus is and we'll just open a hole and we'll get to Jesus. We'll skip the crowd. We're going to get the fast pass. And so it, 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 when I first read this, I thought, well, how did they get on the roof? Don't you have to go in and go up the stairs? But most of these houses in Palestine in those days would have had the stairs on the outside of the house. And so as long as they could get up the stairs they could get up on the roof. And the roof of a house in those days, especially in cities, the roof was like their front porch. This was their, their outdoor area, maybe their front yard, you might think of it. This is where they would enjoy the cool of the evenings, where they would entertain friends. So every house had this upstairs kind of a roof area, and there was a set of stairs usually going up there. thing is, they wouldn't have been nice stairs, like big winding staircase that was nice and wide with a nice banister. No, it's going to be this little skinny set of stairs up the side of that wall there. And now, picture yourself, you're in the pallet. And your four buddies are fixing to go perpendicular. I think that's the right word. And they're headed up this thing with you on, in tow. There's two in front, two in back. You're going... That had to be... An, that was an act of faith right there, folks. But they get up on the roof. And, 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 and they're, they're, they're trying to figure out, okay, now, over here must be, this is the back of the house, and here's the chimney, that'd be where they cook, and so right there, right there close to the hearth would probably be where Jesus is at. Let's just start chopping right here. Now, did they have a, an axe? Did they have a shovel? Did they have a pickaxe? I don't know. Maybe they were just using their bare hands. But there would have been a layer of, like, uh, uh, 
you know, the stuff, the stucco they put on the outside of a house, they have to have something like that on the roof to catch the water. Anyway, they got to get through that, and then the actual roof would have been made of dirt and grass and, and dried uh, dirt and grass, obviously, like clay, whatever, and then beams. Okay, that's all upstairs going on. Now put yourself downstairs with Jesus. You're in the room. Jesus is over here on the hearth. And you're just glued to every word Jesus is saying because after all, it's what you came there for. He's teaching. You're glued to every word. You're listening. And all of a sudden from above you, boom! Something hit us. Boom! It hits again. Now there's little bits of dirt coming down. Guess what? That area suddenly became clear. Would you be one to move from that? Probably. They all moved back. Jesus is over here. Now there's a space in the middle. And they keep hearing this noise. Boom, boom, boom. And then after a few of those booms, they start to see a little, little shaft of light because they were indoors. There weren't a lot of windows on these houses in those days. So if you were indoors, it was pretty dark in there without lamps. Well, even with lamps. But they could see a shaft of sunlight coming through. And then they start seeing hands coming through. And they're breaking back the pieces of wood and the dirt and all the rest in the grass. And some of it's falling down, but most of it's being pulled back. And finally they get a big enough hole open that the, the, the Lord and all of the people in the room there can see these anxious faces of these four friends. And then all of a sudden the hole is eclipsed with a mat. And down comes a mat on four, from the four corners and just lays right there in front of Jesus. Your sermon's over, folks. I, at least, it would have been for me. That would have been where I don't know what to do with this. Well, eventually the hole got big enough. And, and the Bible says, and I love this in verse 5, Jesus, look at this, seeing their faith. He, in that moment, could see their faith. And in that moment, he looked at their faith, and he said, not you're healed, not rise and take up your pallet and walk. But in that moment, Jesus, seeing their faith, said something totally different. He said, son, your sins are forgiven. You see, they could see the need of the man. Hey, I'm, he's a twisted paralytic. He's laying there maybe in a fetal position on a mat. And obviously that's his need. That's his greatest need. Jesus could see a need much greater than that. And so Jesus said to the man, son, your sins are forgiven. Susanna Wesley, the, the mother of John and, and, and Charles Wesley from way back in the day, she said, Jesus is the only physician of souls, His blood the only salve that can heal a wounded conscience. And this, 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 this group, they saw this. And Jesus saw their faith, and Jesus forgave the sin. And this is the precise moment when we meet the third group, Okay. Because when Jesus said, son, your sins are forgiving, forgiven, the, we see this third group, and that is the chattering critic. We had the seeking, suffering seekers, we had the listening learners, now we find the chattering critic, okay? And that is the fault finder, the finger pointer. Y'all know anybody like that? Don't point to them right now. Over in the corner, it says that there, it doesn't say the corner, but in the group there, there was a group of scribes, religious teachers. There were people who had come in to see what the new boy had to offer. You know how sometimes that'll happen where something exciting's going on and some people from the community will come in or maybe some teachers from the local college will come in and they'll come in to see if this new guy is doing a good job because those people, that is these scribes, had been in charge of the spiritual upbringing of this community up until this point. And so they're over here, the leaders, the, the teachers. Later on, we find the scribes and Pharisees mentioned many, many times. And maybe they had better clothes, maybe they didn't. All we know is that in this moment, they started to shoot each other furtive glances. Like, hey, wait a minute, wait a minute. 
did he just say what I think he said? Now, they didn't say it out loud, but I can imagine the rolling of the eyes or the looking down the aisle there trying to find and see if, hey, hey, did you hear that? I heard that. Did you hear that? They're, they feel like, and by the way, anywhere where Jesus is, there will be chattering critics. There will always be somebody there who feels like it's their job to point out the error. Why did you do that? Why did you say it like that? How come that went this way? How come that went that way? They're finding fault with your form, with the function. But hey, they feel like they're guarding against heresy. It's their job to protect against error. And if you break tradition, the scribes and the Pharisees are going to find you. Trust me, I've been there. This group was in the corner. They maybe began to mutter, maybe started moving around, started to fidget, started to frown. They started throwing questioning glances. And in that moment, the chattering critics make themselves known. So that's the three categories right there. But now we turn to the fourth and the most important member of this group, and that is a category of, of one, obviously, Jesus himself, unique, solitary individual, the Son of God. Jesus, in verse 8, aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves, said to them. Now, understand, Jesus recognized and knew their objection. So for the chattering critic, he recognized that they actually, in a sense, they were right. And I'll explain that in just a minute. He knew the need, though, and the concern of the suffering seekers. And he also knew that I'm in the middle of an entire group of listening learners. And so in this moment, I'm going to use this as a teachable moment. Jesus takes advantage of this interruption of his lesson to teach a much deeper truth. And so all the people are now watching. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? He's spoken to the scribes and Pharisees. He's got this, this, this crippled man in front of him. What's he going to do? He knows they're muttering, and so he says to them, why are you reasoning about these things in your heart? Then verse 9 goes on to say, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, arise and take up your pallet and walk? Now stop right there and think about this. What Jesus is trying to teach the whole group here is that the one who is here doing the healing is far greater than you think. Now, they hadn't come to recognize Him as the Savior. They hadn't come to recognize Him as the Son of God and Son of Man yet. All they knew was, wow, we can get, our he we can get healing at this place. Some of them had begun to suspect. And so what Jesus was doing was demonstrating that if I can heal this man, that's the power of God. That's because God has shown up. Like Brother Charlie would say, Jesus shows up and shows off. Well, Jesus said, if this is possible, if this man can be healed... That is proof that God Himself is here. Guess what? That means I can also forgive sin. Now, I can't forgive your sin. In fact, if you look at it correctly, all sin is really sin against God. You might hurt me, and I can forgive you for the hurt. You might make me painful, and I might be able to forgive that and go on. But the sin itself is really against God. So only God can forgive sin. In that way, these scribes were correct because, hey, only God can forgive sins. That's right. And Jesus is trying to show them, see, and what I'm about to do is going to prove that God is here. God the Son was there with them. God, the second member of the Trinity, was there in, in, in their midst. And so Jesus uses this, telling them that the one with authority to heal this man also has authority to forgive sins. And to prove that, he, he, he heals the man. He didn't touch him. He, he just spoke the words. I love it how he says, he says in verse 11, I say to you, rise, take up your pallet, and go home. Not only do I want you to get up, I want you to clean up your area and go. And, and, and it just kind of zips along there. Verse 12, what does it say? And he rose 
and immediately took up his pallet. Now stop right there. Because I want you to get in your mind what that may have looked like. Okay? He came down from the ceiling a twisted paralytic. Now, I don't know. He might have been paralyzed straight out. But mostly, most likely he was a, a, a man in an almost fetal position. His arms would have been maybe twisted. What we know for sure is he was paralyzed, which would have meant all of his muscles would have atrophied over time. All of his joints would have been atrophying and, and actually closing to stay. That's why they go into fetal position. And here he is. Jesus just says, rise. Lord, look at him. He ain't getting up. But he did. In a moment, as Jesus' words were still echoing through that silent crowd, those hands began to open. And those arms began to to maybe push out from his body for the first time in how many years. His muscles began to fill in. That had to be exciting to watch. His, his, his synapses were firing in ways they hadn't in many, many years. And before he knows it, he's moving around and he's seeing muscles that he hadn't seen in years. And he's getting up on his feet and he's standing up and he's looking around <laughs> and they're all looking at him. What would you do, Jeff? I believe I'd take up my mat and leave. <laughs> and you know what? I bet when they, I bet they parted for him on the way out, you think? <laughs> They got up, they made him a hole, and it says he went out in, in verse 12 again. He arose and immediately took up his pallet and went out inside of all, so that they were all amazed and were glorifying God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. The gasp that went through that crowd, I can just imagine. It was at first it would have been, oh, wow. And then they're all saying, Praise God, glory to God. The guys, you know those those concerned faces that you could see through the ceiling? They're they're going out of their mind up there now. Because they brought their friend to Jesus and he got healed. He, not only that, he got his sins forgiven. Everyone's amazed. Now, a couple of three thoughts and I'll be done. That's the story. That, that's the teaching. Now, here comes the preaching. So buckle your seatbelts. <clears throat> I love that phrase so much there. He saw their faith. These five faith-filled men that we know of at least five. The man in the mat, because I, like I said, that would have taken some, some pretty strong faith to let some friends carry me up some stairs in the street in the middle of a hot day. But there were five faith-filled fellas who went to Jesus. And Jesus could see their faith. How do you see faith? Do you break out in faith? Does it come out in spots? Well, actually, it kind of does come out in spots. Because the way you can see faith, Adrian Rogers many years ago said it like this, real faith is belief with legs on it. It's belief with legs on it. It's kind of like when a couple of weeks ago I defined compassion for you. And compassion is having your pain in my heart. But it's really more than that because real compassion will always move you to action. And did you know that even lost people can have compassion? Absolutely. Our world, you can have compassion. You, you don't have to be saved to have compassion because you can see a hurt animal and want to help. And the compassion in your heart rise up and you, you do something about it. You do something to alleviate the pain. That's compassion. Or, you know, you can, anybody can give to Jerry's kids. That's compassion. Anybody can, can feed a third world orphan you know, and take care of that. That's compassion. Even lost people can do that because they have the compassion in their heart. But now faith, faith is a completely different animal. Now, even though it's very similar, because it has a similar definition, faith is belief 
that moves you to obedience. Better than that is faith that moves you to obedient action. Faith that moves you to obedient action. These men believed so strongly that Jesus was the answer to their friend's need that they risked the work of carrying him. Who knows how far they went? These men risked the effort, the time, the work. They even risked the fact that somebody was going to have to pay for that roof. Somebody's going to have to fix that roof. And it's Simon Peter's house. I can imagine he, was, he might not have been real happy about it when that first chunk started coming down. He was probably okay with it at the end, but somebody still got to fix the roof. These men risked that, the embarrassment and the ridicule of doing all of this out in the open. Jesus saw that, and in seeing their activity, he saw their faith. So my question to us today is, what are we doing? How can people see our faith? Now, let me quickly say, and I hope you don't misunderstand, faith always comes before work, okay? You don't work your way to faith, if you'll let me say it this way, you faith your way to work, all right? Because real faith always produces works. Real works does not always produce faith. In fact, never does because you can't work, faith your, or work your way to faith. Jesus could see their faith in what they were doing. Can others see your faith in what you are doing? You know, a lot of you this morning, you got up and came to church and passed by who knows how many folks that were out in their yard. Maybe they were mowing. Maybe they were just wondering, why is he always going somewhere on Sunday morning? They could see your faith. You know why? Because you were on your way to church. You were on your way to see somebody or to do something that maybe they're not unfamiliar with, and they can see your faith. Somebody comes on a Sunday night. Oh, my goodness, now I'm really showing my faith. I'm going to church on a Sunday night. <gasps> Wednesday night. Wednesday night. That's for the faithful few? No, not necessarily. What we do for God, we do however we do it, whenever we can. Let others see your faith. And the way we let others see our faith is the works that we do because of our faith, the obedient action, just like these men carrying their friend. Secondly, let me say, be very careful. Be, okay, I'm going to go ahead and say it. Be very careful that you don't find yourself being one of the chattering critics. Because, as I said, everywhere there's Jesus, you're going to find chattering critics. And, and, and being a fault finder, being a naysayer, being a finger pointer is the easiest thing in the world. And it's cheap because it's so easy. Because everybody's a human being and everybody still makes mistakes. And oftentimes we find ourselves being a, a, a critic without even meaning to. We didn't start out to criticize. Because in America, in 21st century America, especially since the, the advent of Twitter and Facebook, it seems like everybody has an opinion and you need to hear it. And, and you take a, a, a capable, relatively intelligent human being in 21st century America, and they see something that they don't think is just exactly right. Hey, I need to say something about that. Or they say, hey, you know, I see an injustice, I need to deal with that. Or I see something I think might be a little bit heretical, I better jump on that like a cat on a bug. By the way, have you ever seen a cat go on a bug? It's, I have, and it's fun. In fact, I used to take my cat hunting. I'd just throw him at a, at a bug. It's totally free, you don't have to pay extra for that. But so many people who become chattering critics, that's what they do. They just, without feeling it, without meaning to necessarily, they get to that place where, hey, I've got to fix this. It's my job to fix you or to fix the preacher or to fix this or that. Listen, 
Every place where Jesus is, there are going to be critics. Be careful that you don't find yourself falling into that category. Because many times, the reason why people become such faithful, chattering critics is because they've never really been born again. So my question to you is, if you have that, that heart that says, look, I need to fix you, fix yourself first, and then I'll be more than happy to let you help me fix me. But if somebody's never really been born again, it's no surprise that they would be in church. You say, well, why would they come to church if they're not really born again? I can tell you why, because the devil has missionaries. Brother Robert, you telling me the devil sent people to church? All over the country. All over the country. The enemy doesn't care, really, if you get into church so much as he cares that you get nothing out of church. Can I say that again? Because it made sense. See, the enemy of your soul doesn't care if you're in church so much, nearly as much, as he does to make sure once you're there, you get zero out of it. Because the devil would just as soon send you to hell from a church pew as he would from a bar stool. Maybe, maybe more, in fact, if you can disrupt God's people on the way. You say, Brother Robert, why are you preaching? Somebody's got to do it. The believers, listen, I understand... As a congregation, real true believers will experience disagreements. Real true believers, loving people will have divergence of opinion. But Jesus must be, still is, has to be the center of everything we do. The center for listening learners, the disciples who come, they must receive lessons not from a teacher, but from Jesus through the teacher. Those suffering seekers, they come to a church not to find a church, what the church can do, but what Jesus can do through that church. Even those chattering critics, they come to church, and God's going to use that church for correction of those chattering critics. So my, my question really is, have you ever let your faith be seen? And we're going to give an opportunity for that here in a little while. We're going to have an invitation, and there are going to be folks that are going to come, and they're going to say, I'm going to show the world my faith right now. I'm coming to rededicate my life, or I'm coming to, to be a candidate for baptism, or I'm coming to just tell the world I've accepted Christ, and I don't care who knows it. Has the world seen your faith? Tonight we're going to finish this. I've got four more pages I'm not going to preach. We'll finish it tonight. But right now, I just want you to know that the same Jesus that was in that house that day is inviting you today to come to Him to have your sins forgiven. Brother Robert, he didn't even know he needed his sins forgiven. A lot of us don't know it either. A lot of us think, well, I'm pretty good. I mean, and after all, there was a, a book years ago called I'm Okay, You're Okay. Problem with the name of that book is that ain't nobody okay. All of us need help. All of us are sinners. The Bible says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that all is not, yeah, all y'all have. No, it's all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the reason we preach Jesus every week in this church and across this country and across this world is because Jesus is the only answer to the sins of our, of our heart, of our lives, of our church, of our family, of our nation. Jesus is the answer. Do you know that revival for our country is never going to land on Air Force One? It doesn't matter who's in that White House. It matters who's in this house. Is Jesus the Lord of your heart? Is Jesus your Lord and Savior? That's the real question. God will save this world, but He'll do it one heart at a time. And my question to you today is, has He touched your heart? Have you come to Him 
as a seeking sufferer, suffering from sin, suffering from other needs, have you come to Him and said, here I am, Lord, and the first thing He'll do is He'll take care of your sin. Now, He'll take care of all the rest. It may take a while, maybe a long process. But the first thing is give your heart to Jesus. Let's pray. Thank you.